0: Hello and welcome back to New Books in National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish, your host, and today we... Hello and welcome back to New Books in National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish, your host, and today we will be talking with Jacob Shapiro about the new book Small Wars Big Data: The Information Revolution and in Modern Conflict. Jake co-authored this book with Ellie Berman and Joseph Felter. Jake, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Beth. Thanks for having us on to talk about the book.
0: Could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Sure, absolutely. So I'm a professor in politics and public policy here at Princeton, and I've been here now for about a decade. And my path here was a little circumspect. Uh, I went to college at University of Michigan, and after that went into the Navy And served for a bit and got very interested in questions of national security, uh, you know, as a a producer in that space. And afterwards, I went to grad school and started working on issues around terrorism and insurgency and realized that there were some things which were being taken for granted in the policy community, which just didn't match up with what we were seeing in the evidence. So in my previous work, there was this conception in the policy community in 2002, 2003 the the militant groups we were fighting in different places around the world were like relatively unified organizations where everyone kind of got along and shared a sense of uh, agreed mission which was just not at all what was going on on the inside there was all kinds of infighting and disagreements and and hate and discontent and so after writing about that for a little while i started to get very interested in 2006 and 7 in some of the things that were going on in places like afghanistan and iraq and as my co-author, Joe, was going over those places uh, to deploy, who's uh, was active duty in the Army at the time. And as Ellie and I as veterans were looking at these places, we thought it really made sense to try and understand more what kinds of policies could be used to better help those places restore social and political order. And so we started the Empirical Studies of Conflict Project uh, in 2008, which is a multi-university group, uh, to really try and understand What goes on in these new conflicts that we're fighting in places around the world? What kinds of policies can be used to address them? And how can the people in the research community do work that's both theoretically relevant for political science and economics and security studies, but also speaks directly to the challenges that the people out there in the field running the projects and standing the watch are facing every day? And that's really where this book came from. We worked on that for the last decade, basically, and starting about Three years ago, uh, our colleagues in this network that that we built up and supported over the years started pushing us to say, look, you know, you guys and other people in this network, we've written tens of research papers. We've done many, many projects in countries all over the world. Someone needs to try and pull this together and say what we've learned. And so we started working on that. And it's been a tremendous joy over the last three years to try and build out our understanding and just try and figure out, okay, what has the last decade of searing experiences in Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, the Philippines, Colombia, all the places where the U.S. and its allies are fighting and trying to help local governments restore order, what have those experiences taught us about how we can do better in those places, and what does that teach us in a deeper way about what goes on inside asymmetric conflicts? And that's, that's really where the book came from.
0: There are many interesting findings in this book, but before we get to those, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about the data sources you used, and in some cases, the data that was retrieved and coded to inform the analysis.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Beth. So one of the basic principles that we had at at ESOC, and this came from a lot of personal experience that Joe and I had had, is oftentimes by working in a cooperative manner with folks in the government and in aid agencies, you can get access to these amazing data sources that are collected, collected administratively, and you can find ways to bring them out into the public domain so they can be used for academic research. And so Joe and I really started doing this way back in 2005 with internal documents from Al Qaeda that were stored in something called the Harmony Database, which the U S government maintained. And this was basically like a database of documents captured on the battlefield in various places around the world in what was then known as the war on terror. And so we had had this great experience where we'd worked with the government to get things from that database released, which greatly expanded our understanding of what went on inside terrorist organizations and particularly Al-Qaeda and Al-Qaeda in Iraq and groups like that. So we took that experience and we brought that to administrative data on conflict events, first in Iraq uh, and Afghanistan and uh, for Joe in the Philippines during his dissertation research. And what what we did is basically said, look, military organizations and aid organizations are often really good at recording events that happen, both violent events and the kinds of programs that they put in place. So where they spend money, when they spend it, what they spend it on. And if you bring those two things together, then there's this whole toolkit from the science of program evaluation, which was built up to study domestic political policies and domestic public policy that you can use to understand what goes on inside conflict. And so the first data set we did this with was this data that the government of the Philippines has been maintaining since 1975, where their armed forces have recorded every combat incident that they get into and the basic details of that incident. We then got properly declassified similar data from Iraq, where the U.S. government had been recording what they called significant activities, which were individual incidents of violence. And that was extremely productive. We took some of that, started speaking with folks uh, in 2007 at something called the Gulf Region Division of the Army Corps of Engineers, which had built this huge database of all the aid programs that had been done in Iraq. And we brought those two together and realized that we could actually say a lot about which kinds of aid spending were violence reducing in Iraq. And that was a, you know, that was a huge investment, like $40 billion investment through 2008 by the U.S. government. And so it was really valuable to understand what seemed to work to bring violence down and what didn't. And, you know, once we had those examples in hand, we could go out to many other organizations and other governments and say, look, if you're able to share some of this administrative data and make it available for academic research, we can tell you a lot of things that you might want to know and we can advance research. And that's been really successful. And a a key part of what we've tried to do in this is to say, look, once we've done that and we've done some initial research with it, let's make it public because there's this huge fixed cost to building the relationships and getting down into the weeds to understand what's in these administrative data. And once we've done that, there's no reason other researchers should have to. So one of the big things we've done at, at ESOC is we've tried to make those things available to the broader community and so you see now uh, tons of research papers which is which use those data which is very gratifying for us because we feel like that effort we put in on the front end yeah it led to some papers by us but more importantly it's led to this community being able to do research on the conflicts that we've studied in ways that they couldn't have done had we not taken on those fixed costs.
0: That gets us to the big data part of the title. <laughs> it's, uh, it's interesting to think about the precision of the information, especially in modern conflicts, where you talked about down to times and precise times and precise locations. Do you see this analysis shaping modern conflict?
1: So, different kinds of analysis that take advantage of high frequency, uh, high precision data are certainly shaping modern conflict in the sense that they are being used on a a daily basis in different conflict zones to think about operational details of strategy. So for example, in Afghanistan, there was a group that worked for um, something called the the ISAF joint command, which was basically the command that was responsible for the day-to-day war fighting by NATO in 2010, 11, 12, and so on. And a group at ISAF joint command did some analysis during the war to try and understand uh, basically why units were so often getting hit with IED attacks, improvised explosive devices, uh, as they left their bases. And what they realized looking at data from across the theater was that uh, patrols in a lot of places were going out on a schedule that was fairly well dictated by uh, the regular workday schedule. So people were leaving at a predictable time. And so insurgents, knowing when folks were leaving, could predict when they needed to set an ambush and therefore have a high probability of success. So they did this analysis. They passed this back out to the field. Folks changed how they were leaving. They noticed an uptick on violent events when people were returning, because initially when this happened, while most units, more units started randomizing when they left, they didn't necessarily start randomizing when they came home. And so they pushed that information out, folks changed how they were operating. And so you had this feedback loop between the high-precision data that was being generated in the field, internal analysis at the command, and then changes in how people worked in the field. And you can multiply that example through lots of other things in recent conflicts. Where the data are not being used as effectively, within government at least, is kind of at the next level up where you think about taking advantage of these resources to do that program evaluation task and say, look, when we changed X in how we operated, did we get the desired change in outcome? So did stability increase? Did violence go down? And there's some of that, but it's still nascent in part because the kinds of people and the kinds of teams that you need to do this analysis at the programmatic level They're different than the teams you need to do that kind of very granular tactical analysis. And that granular tactical analysis is the main reason these data are being collected and stored. And so that's a lot of what gets done. And that slightly more abstract programmatic evaluation doesn't happen as much, although that's changing and you're starting to see more of it come online.
0: In the book, you consistently use a model of a three-player game as it relates to asymmetric conflicts with the three players consisting of the government, rebels, and the civilian population. Can you talk about that dynamic and what you looked at regarding the civilians' role in these types of conflicts?
1: For sure. So let me back up a step and kind of get into that by saying there's this basic difference between symmetric conflicts where the two sides have equal levels of uh, military capacity and who wins or loses is is decided more or less along the lines of who can mass more force and uh, manpower in a particular place and time than the other side. That's kind of the intuition we often bring to conflict. But when you look at wars like the ones in Afghanistan and Iraq and the wars that governments like Colombia was fighting against its insurgency or Pakistan against its insurgency, they're not really about that. They're about something different. If the government knows when and where the insurgents are going to be, they can typically bring sufficient force to defeat them in that location. And so then the question becomes, well, how do you know when and where they're going to be? And when the attacks are these small things that can be carried out by one or two people, like the kinds of improvised explosive devices that killed and wounded so many American and NATO soldiers in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, that activity doesn't leave a lot of an intelligence signal. Right? It's very hard to observe from afar. You can't see it with, you know, radar or satellites. You need someone to tell you what's been happening. And so civilians become critical and the information they share becomes critical. And so the game, in some sense, in these asymmetric conflicts is not over who can bring more force to bear at a particular place in time. The game is about who can get the civilians to either share information if you're the government side or stay quiet when they're aware of insurgent activity, if you're on the insurgent side. And, you know, that intuition is not ours. That's something that people have been saying for a long time. In some ways it's what any uh, veteran of a counterinsurgency campaign for the last 30 or 40 years might tell you. What we did is we, Uh, took that intuition, which came from Joe's experience and Ellie's experience and the experience of lots of people that they both fought with in different places, and put that into like a formal mathematical representation that let us get some fairly precise predictions for what you can do, which would make civilians more willing to share information.
0: And in the book, you create a story about a father in the Philippines who is in the middle of this type of trade-off. Can you talk a little bit about his story and the choices he was faced with? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So when we were thinking in the book about how to explain this idea to people, we thought that the best way to do it would would be to put them in the extremely difficult position of the civilian caught in the middle of one of these conflicts. And so we tell the story of a father in the Philippines who is in his house one night, and he hears people moving in the alley next door, and he lives in an area where there's contestation between the government and the rebels. And so, you know, it's very unusual for people to be moving around at night. And so he infers that it's a team of insurgents that may be planting an IED in his alley to target the government patrol that will come by the next day. And so then he has this very difficult choice to make. On the one hand, he could stay quiet, and then he's safe from the insurgents. No one's going to retaliate against him for sharing information. But the next day, the ID might go off and harm one of his children or his family, or there might be a firefight around an ambush that the insurgents are going to lay. And one of his family members might suffer uh, inadvertent casualties from that, right? A bullet might go through the wrong window at the wrong point in time. And so maybe he can stay safe by being quiet, but he also exposes his family to some risk. Now... On the other hand, if he calls in the information, he knows for sure that either the government will defuse the explosive or that they'll be able to capture the insurgents. But then he creates some risk because maybe the insurgents will realize that it was him who called in the tip and then he'll be in in deep trouble, right? He'll be at risk for being assassinated or killed or having someone in his family retaliated against. So he's got this trade-off. And maybe also if he informs on the insurgents, then what happens instead of a bomb going off and hitting the patrol is there might be an operation in his neighborhood which exposes him or his neighbors to some risk. So he's got to balance all these complicated trade-offs, and he only has a short period of time to do it. And it's not clear how he's going to decide because there's this thing which neither of the combatants know about, which is how much does this bother, who happened to hear the noise, how much does he want the government to win versus how much he wants the insurgents to win. And if he's a deep supporter of the government, then maybe he'll take a greater risk in order to inform and tell them where the insurgents are. On the other hand, if he really believes in the insurgents' political mission, then maybe he's willing to take more of a risk to his family by not informing. And so all these complicated trade-offs get loaded on to this civilian who hasn't taken a side in the conflict. And we kind of leave the story with this man sitting in his courtyard as dawn is approaching, having to decide, is he going to call in the tip on his cell phone or is he going to stay quiet? And that's the dilemma that the civilians caught in the middle of these asymmetric conflicts face every day. Um, And so by trying to put you in that person's, uh, mindset and give you a little bit of a window into their world we try to make the potentially abstract trade-offs that they face like very concrete
0: in a very data heavy book you effectively use storytelling throughout the different chapters not just the one you you just mentioned but also real-life examples and other uh, other stories where analysis was presented or you know different uh, areas where it could have helped. How did you make that stylistic choice in the writing of the book?
1: Well, Beth, we really wanted the book to speak to people who weren't, you know, who weren't uh, economists or political scientists or social scientists. We wanted the book to speak to those people, but also to a much broader set of folks who have to think about how their governments are engaging in these conflicts and what they should be doing. And so what we tried to do is find for all the pieces of evidence where we had some nice econometric story with graphs and data and things. We also tried to make it real by telling you a story. Um, And, you know, one of my favorite such stories is actually what happened in the area that one of my former students um, controlled uh, in Anbar province in in Iraq, where uh, they did some work to basically put up a cell phone tower during the war in in the base that they were on to serve the community that they were in in order to facilitate coordination with the local police so that when they went out on the mission, the police wouldn't be there and potentially have some some conflict they didn't want. And as a result of doing this, they saw this huge increase in the amount of information flow they were getting from civilians. And if you think about the story of the father I just told you, one implication of that story is if you make it safer for the father to inform on the rebels, Then he's going to be more likely to do so because that risk of retaliation goes down and in iraq during the course of the most intense parts of the civil war uh, the cell phone infrastructure got built out basically people be able to became able to communicate with the government anonymously for the first time in many areas with with very low risk and so when we give you that result and tell you some of the econometrics about it and we then combine that with the story of this unit at Camp Havania in Iraq, which puts up a cell phone tower and sees this unexpected explosion in the intelligence that they're getting from the local population. It makes that dynamic, which was previously very abstract, quite concrete. And that's the rhetorical goal. And I think it also makes the book like a lot more fun to read.
0: The role of mobile communications, um, that entire chapter, which you just touched on a little bit is was really interesting and you also cited some examples kind of of the opposite of what you just talked about with uh, Boko Haram and also some interesting stories about the control of cell phone towers in Afghanistan. Could you tell us a little bit more about your findings about the role of mobile communication networks and some of the different case studies you looked at?
1: Sure, absolutely. So we looked at we basically looked at the role of mobile communications Played in conflict in a number of places, and the the kind of starting point for that chapter is that governments have been quite inconsistent about how they think about mobile communication. So, in uh, in northern Thailand, where the government faced uh, and is faces an Islamist insurgency in two thousand five, the government took the view that access to cell phones was a great boon for the insurgency, and so they needed to restrict access, and so they put in a number of uh, requirements of identification and things to pick up SIM cards that made it harder for people to get cell phones. Um, In uh, Northern Nigeria, uh, the government took a similar view that cell phones were a boon to the insurgency and so tried to restrict access. Now, in Iraq, the government didn't take such action and there the insurgents actually threatened the telecommunications providers with violence for not doing a good enough job of maintaining the network. So in all three places, people basically thought, yeah, you know what, this, these systems, they probably favor the insurgents because they let them organize and let them fuse IEDs in different ways. And so maybe it's a bad thing. But then you look at Afghanistan and there the insurgents either made the telecom providers shut down the cell phone network in 2008 and 2009 in parts of the country where they were strong. Or they made them turn off the towers at night when they were worried that as they were moving around, people might call in tiffs. And so there's this interesting situation where it seemed like the combatants in a number of conflicts didn't actually understand, at least not systematically across countries, did mobile communications favor the government or did they favor the rebels? And what we found in Iraq is that very clearly it favored the government when Cellular communication was put in in Iraq, in the areas where towers uh, introduced new coverage. Violence went down by about 50% from the average level in areas that, that got that new coverage. But when you put in a tower, which just made coverage deeper, there was no such change. So really that act of turning on for the first time people's ability to text with the government or make a phone call from the privacy of their own home, that seemed to really drive down violence, which was striking because the insurgents in Iraq clearly thought the opposite. And now if you look at the kind of how-to manuals the different insurgent groups are putting in place or the ways that they operate, they very much recognize this as a vulnerability. And so in lots of places around the world, they're kind of off-cellular communications and they discourage uh, the provision of coverage. But at the time we were writing, that wasn't so clear, but the evidence just all kind of lined up behind it being a net benefit to the government.
0: Another assumption you examined was the connections between aid and violence and kind of that um, idea of the, the strategy of winning hearts and minds. Mm-hmm. Can you talk more about that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the like long held tropes in this literature on insurgency and counterinsurgency was the idea that you needed to win hearts and minds. And when, that literature was kind of being written, people thought mostly in terms of civilians taking like fairly costly actions to support the government, right? Going to fight on the government side and things like that. And when we looked at the ways that counterinsurgency operations actually happened, it, it didn't require that at all. What you needed was someone to take a small decision to call in a tip. And that's, that's not a huge thing to do in a lot of settings. And so... We then looked at how aid money was being spent in Afghanistan and Iraq and other places. And it was really being spent on this theory that uh, you would do these large aid projects. And one of two things would happen. Either you would gain a lot of goodwill for doing the aid project because people would look around and say, aha, our government and their allies, they're doing big things for us. They're building stuff. They're fixing the infrastructure. And that would shift people's political attitudes. Or you would put people to work who could otherwise fight against you. And so you'd reduce the ability of the insurgency to produce violence by uh, basically giving them something better to do, or at least giving their fighters something better to do. And we looked at that story from the outside, and we saw two really big problems with it. Uh, One was that most of these projects, the big projects that were being done in Iraq and in Afghanistan a little bit later, uh, they weren't being done very well. So, for example, the U.S. government starts trying to build a water treatment plant in Fallujah in 2004, aiming to serve a population of about 100,000 people. They project it's going to cost $34 million and take 18 months to complete. Uh, It is completed in six and a half years at a cost of about $80 million and serves 33,000 people. And so the average Iraqi in the area looking at that says, wow we know the u.s government is super powerful so they must be super corrupt because otherwise they could have gotten that thing built on budget and on time and this is systematic across large scale aid projects in lots of places they're very hard to execute in conflict affected zones and so they don't get done that well so that idea that doing the big stuff was going to win legitimacy was kind of problematic on its face and the idea that putting people to work would get them to not be insurgents. That was also kind of problematic on its its face, because if you look across the world at lots of insurgencies, you see that oftentimes the fighters are not full-time. They're part-time. They have a day job, they take care of their family, and they spend time with the insurgency because they believe in the cause that they're fighting for. And that was certainly the case in, in Iraq for large parts of the war. And further, when you look at what the insurgents were actually paid, which we could do in Iraq because of that Harmony database I mentioned earlier, we could actually see the salary records of Al-Qaeda in Iraq at at different points in time. They were paying people way below market wages. So there wasn't this sense in which people were making a trade-off between, you know, maybe I should go work on some reconstruction project or be an insurgent. And if the reconstruction project pays more, I'm going to go work for them. Like that wasn't the calculus at all. And what that meant is that it was really unlikely that the people that you would employ because the project existed who wouldn't otherwise have a job, what you might call the marginal employees, if you were trying to speak like an economist, they weren't the people who were going to fight for the insurgency. So the fact that you were employing more of them didn't actually reduce the labor supply available to the insurgency. So, you know, we looked at this big set of aid expenditures. And again, you know, through 2008 in Iraq, it was about $40 billion dollars. It's about a hundred billion dollars to date in Afghanistan. And we said, man, these like, just on the face of it, we wouldn't expect that all these big projects would make a difference. But there was also aid spent on really small things, not small in terms of like unimportant, but small in terms of dollar value and time that they were spent. And because of the data we we're able to get for Iraq from uh, the army Corps of engineers, We actually knew where and when different amounts of money were spent and on what. And so what we could do is we could ask a simple question, which is, what happens to violence when you increase spending on small projects versus what happens to violence when you increase spending on large projects? And in general, more money was being spent in places that were more violent because it was seen as a valuable tool of counterinsurgency. But if you look at those changes, what you see is when spending goes up on small projects uh, in Iraq, violence comes down. But when spending goes up on big projects, violence is kind of flat or, if anything, slightly increasing. And so that was a clue that maybe there was something interesting going on. And so we started to dig into this more and asked two further questions. One was, uh, what happens when, when aid projects are executed with like relatively more expertise in how to run aid projects in the local area? And what happens when they're executed in places where there are more forces available to take advantage of any information that you get from the civilians? And what you saw is for those small projects, when spending on small projects went up in places that had basically more access to aid expertise or more forces available to operate on the basis of the information that might be shared by civilians, violence went down really dramatically, right? Two to three times as quickly per dollar spent as when you did those small projects in places where you didn't have forces in place or didn't have aid expertise, but there was no similar relationship for the large stuff. So it wasn't just about like better execution or executing where there was more security. There was something important about these small projects and a colleague renard sexton has found similar results in afghanistan and so what that suggests in the context of the father in the courtyard that we talked about earlier is when the local military unit is able to provide some things that are of value to that father in small ways that affect his day-to-day life but might not be these like big infrastructure projects he he cares about that that creates some positive sentiment towards the government not in some abstract emotional way, but in the very concrete sense that if the government controls my territory tomorrow, I'm going to get more of these things that I find valuable. And so it's worth it for me to take a little bit more of a risk to share information with them. And you don't see that for the large stuff, we think, because the large stuff is accompanied with all these negative things, the sense of corruption, the sense of poor execution. And so that whatever benefits you're getting in terms of people feeling better about how things are going to be in the next period if the government remains in control. That stuff is counterbalanced in the large projects by all the negative things. And so when we then step back and look at this picture, uh, you know, from kind of a 30,000 foot view, it tells you something really important about how to use aid in, in places like Afghanistan and Iraq, which is while they're still violent, we shouldn't be out there trying to fix the big stuff because it's gonna be really expensive per unit of infrastructure put in, because it's expensive and hard to operate in conflict zones, and it's not gonna help bring down violence. But if we get into those places and we do small targeted things that the population cares about, that can win some goodwill for the government or at least win some cooperation for the government, which can help bring violence down and make it possible for the next stage of reconstruction and rebuilding of social and political order to take place.
0: There's another assumption that I think is kind of an assumed connection people make between poverty or poor economic conditions and insurgent violence. Did your research support that common assumption or did did you find anything that surprised you?
1: So the research totally doesn't support that assumption as a general matter. So if you look across the world at multiple studies in different places, Sometimes you see that poorer places are more violent, and sometimes they're not. And sometimes you see that when poverty goes up, violence goes up, and sometimes you see that when poverty goes up, violence goes down. So there's not a consistent relationship around the world. It's certainly true that poorer countries see more violence than wealthier countries, but that cross-country comparison masks a lot of variation in what happens when violence, uh, what the relationship is between economic conditions and violence in different places and how those changes relate. And so what we tried to do is ask a really simple question in three different countries where we knew the conflict was asymmetric in the sense that it was the decision of the father, which was critical. So we took data from uh, Afghanistan, uh, Iraq, and the Philippines, and we just said, Let's take the best data that we can find on unemployment and the best data that we can find on insurgent violence and just ask at the local level in each of these countries, when unemployment goes up from one period to the next period, does violence go up or down? Simple question, right? And what we see is that in all three countries, when unemployment goes up, uh, violence goes down which is the opposite of what you would think if poverty and need were causing the violence. Now, none of these countries are ones where the insurgency is fundamentally over economic issues, so maybe that's important. But what we suspect is going on is that when unemployment goes up, more people need money. They need to find ways to make, uh, basically make enough to pay for their families. And all these contexts are places where you have lots of people from the government running around as part of the counterinsurgency strategy, willing to pay for information on the insurgency. And so what we think might be happening in these places is that when the economy gets bad and poverty goes up, the price of information falls. And so it's easier for the government to get information. Now there could be other reasons for the relationship. One could be that the things the government does, which, reduce violence by insurgents, they also mess up the economy. So setting up lots of checkpoints and occasionally running raids in the middle of the night and dropping bombs on insurgents, like these are not good things for economic production. They don't make businesses happy. They don't, uh, you know, they hinder their ability to produce. But one of our colleagues took a look at data from India, Oliver Vanden who's at Paris School of Economics, and he found this really interesting thing, which is that during periods there, when the economy gets bad, Uh, The Maoist insurgency doesn't increase its attacks on government forces. They actually increase their violence against civilians. And that's entirely consistent with this idea that when the economy gets bad, the price of information falls, and so people are more willing to sell information to the government. And then insurgents might strategically respond to that by increasing their use of threats and intimidation against civilians. So at least in India's counterinsurgency in the Naxalite-affected regions of the country, That's very much what you see. And so this like broad link between poverty and violence, it just doesn't seem to follow at the micro level, uh, partly because like people aren't making a choice between regular employment and insurgency in all conflicts. Sometimes they're part-time insurgents, but also because that's just not the way these highly asymmetric conflicts work. The supply of labor to the insurgents is not the thing that constrains their use of violence the sharing of information by the civilians. And so you get a very different dynamic. Um, You know, just to to step back for a minute, though, if your theory of how you were going to reduce violence in conflict-affected places was that you were going to reduce poverty in those places, that theory is kind of uh, untenable for two reasons. One is that, as we've just talked about, like that's not the way the microdynamics of conflict work. The other is we don't actually really know as an international community how to bring poverty down in the near term there's not a lot of great success stories that say look if you do x y and z in a given society like you're going to drive poverty way down we don't just don't know how to do that as an international community and so while there are tremendous efforts by extremely motivated aid professionals around the world to address poverty we still don't have that magical key, which might let us bring unemployment down enough and drive enough economic growth that people would look around and say, you know what, that political cause that I was willing to fight and die for, uh, I don't want to do that now. I just want to go to work. Like We just don't know how to affect change at that scale.
0: Just returning to the role of the civilian, uh-huh. there's a good deal of discussion throughout the book on the effects civilian casualties have on the war effort, not only from the obvious moral standpoint, but also in strategic terms. Can you discuss this more?
1: Yeah, I'd love to. So, one of the big debates um, in military organizations when they're addressing counterinsurgency in and in broader public policy is how much risk and cost should the counterinsurgents take to avoid harming civilians? So, to make this very concrete, if a unit is pinned down and taking fire from a complex of buildings, um can they just call in an airstrike on that complex or should they have to at risk to their lives make sure that there are no civilians in the complex before they they do that or when a soldier is standing watch at a checkpoint and a vehicle is approaching and not paying attention to warning signs how close do they have to let that come how much do they have to verify that it's actually a vehicle borne explosive device coming at them Versus, say, a father driving his family to work who's late and so missed the warning signs or is just in a hurry. And so those decisions, which soldiers in counterinsurgency face every day, uh, are really consequential. And there's got to be a sense, there's a sense in which you've got this near-term safety of the individual versus this longer-term strategic uh, incentive, And, and goal, and there's some trade-off there. And so what we wanted to do is take the best data that we could find from different countries and ask, uh, what's that strategic trade-off look like, right? What is the value in fact of, uh, trying to avoid those civilian casualties? And what we see in data from, uh, both Afghanistan and Iraq, and to some extent in data from Pakistan is that uh, both sides pay a cost when they harm civilians. So when the government harms civilians, uh, information flow to the government goes down and insurgent attacks go up. And when insurgents harm civilians, information flow to the government goes up and their ability to produce violence goes down. And both sides pay a cost for hurting civilians. And, uh, you know, you can, depending how you run the numbers, you can quantify that result in different ways. But the upshot is that father in the courtyard, he remembers how he was treated in previous periods by both sides. And those affect, those affect his decisions. And this has some very practical implications for strategy and policy. One is that in most conflicts where the United States and its allies are fighting, the vast majority of harm to civilians is done by the other side. It's done by the insurgents who uh, you know, set off an IED along a large road in order to target a military convoy without regard for the civilians who might be driving down the other side of the road. That's where most of the civilian deaths happen in these conflicts. It's not the errant airstrike, which gets uh, a lot of the media reporting. And that's a fact that we could do more to play up and more to emphasize so that populations really understand just how much risk the insurgents are putting them at. And when we do some work, we did some work in Pakistan in, in 2009 and 2012 uh, with, with Christine Fair at Georgetown and Neil Trout at Stanford, where we actually ran some experiments where we gave people true information about the consequences that uh, terrorists were imposing on civilians in their country. And systematically, when we tell people about the costs, support for the violence producing groups goes down. Right? They, they just don't like them. And we see similar results in survey data from Afghanistan. And so there's this, this real sense in which both sides have strong incentives to avoid harming civilians. It's just, A, like morally and under the law of armed conflict, there's a duty. But as a strategic matter, it seems to pay some benefits.
0: Related to that, you touched on the use of drones in asymmetric conflicts. What are the major takeaways there?
1: Well, so we touch a little bit on drones. It's not something we looked at, we looked at deeply, but if you think about what drones do, uh, one thing they do is they enable very precise targeting of insurgents and doing so in ways um, which, you know, which, which can minimize civilian casualties. And so when you look, um, you look at the effect of drones in, uh, in Afghanistan and Pakistan, You know, there's been a lot of discussion over what the effect of these things is and how do people think about them in those populations. And the best evidence that, or at least, you know, our reading of the evidence is that first the drone campaigns are highly effective at reducing the ability of insurgent organizations to operate. So they force them to be uh, much more secretive They reduce their ability to do things like hold meetings and coordinate activities. And so you see these big reductions in violence in areas uh, where the drone campaigns were applied and after individual strikes, violence goes down for a period. The thing that you don't see is the thing that uh, lots of people were worried about, which is that the civilian casualties caused by these drone campaigns would drive an increase in recruiting to militant groups, which would outweigh the, the strategic value of disrupting the, the drones, uh, of disrupting the terrorists. And so, you know, they, from a public policy perspective, uh, just from the perspective of like the U.S. government, for example, they seem a fairly effective tool of counterinsurgency and counterterrorism. Now, there's a deeper issue of whether those campaigns were executed at all times with the care to innocent civilian life that we might want. And that's like, that's a debate that's very hard to weigh into because of the dodgy nature of some of the data. And it's kind of gets into an ethical territory that we don't talk a lot about in the book. Uh, But what is clear is these like very precisely targeted attacks do have the effect that we would expect, which is they reduce the ability of the insurgent and terrorist groups to operate.
0: In the book's conclusion, you talk about some major lessons for better understanding asymmetric conflict. What are some of the takeaways for policymakers and are they different for more tactical use um, in, the, in the military kind of operations sphere?
1: Sure. So I think I think there are some lessons uh, at the tactical level which have to do with, you know, how should you use aid money and should you be spending money in places where you don't have forces? And basically the, the lesson there is we should focus on smaller scale projects better staff so they can be executed well, and don't try to use aid in places where there's no security presence. That's that's not an effective way to bring violence down. I think the the deeper lesson, and I think the kind of most important one to take away, is that there are clearly things that can be done to help our allies gain control of a given village or a given valley. There's kind of like an algorithm for doing that, if you will, which involves bringing in some resources to do good things for the community and bringing in some military force so you can take advantage of the information that's shared and target uh, and kill or capture the insurgents in that area. But the ability to establish order over a given village or a given valley or a given district is fundamentally different than solving the political issue which led to the conflict in the first place. And Iraq right now is a blindingly obvious example of that. So from mid-2006 through 2008, um, applying the approach that we talk about in the conclusion of providing these targeted public goods and sufficient military force and trying to avoid civilian casualties as much as you possibly can, like those things were done and levels of violence in the country uh, came down more than 85% from their peak and basically stabilized the U.S. and Iraqi forces effectively stabilized the Sunni areas of Iraq during that 18 month period. And the country was quite stable uh, by its standards from 2009 through 2012. There was for sure terrorist terrorism going on. And there were a number of horrific incidents during that period, but by and large, politically, the country was stable, but the underlying political uh, fight, which drove the civil war in Iraq in the first place between the Sunni population and and the Shia population, or at least between the political leaders on the two sides, those things weren't solved. And so in 2013, when the Sunni population in Anbar begins a series of uh, mostly peaceful protests against the national government, they're met with an incredibly uh, uh, hard-handed response, a heavy-handed response by the government involving uh, a fair amount of suppression and use of government violence against the protesters. And so after a year of this, when the government has clearly shown that it is not interested in addressing their political grievances or allowing them into the fold of governance, uh, as uh, the Islamic State of Iraq seeks to return uh, to Iraq from Syria, where they've been fighting, uh, what was then the Islamic State of Iraq in Syria, that population basically welcomes them in or at least allows them to enter and they do so because they were between a rock and a hard place the government had shown that politically it wasn't going to accommodate their interests, and so the fact that the united states and the iraqis together won that victory over the insurgency in 2006 to 2008 did not solve the underlying political rift and that came roaring back in 2014 as the Islamic State swept across, uh, across Western Iraq. And so what does that mean for policy at the strategic level? It means that we shouldn't mistake the existence of this approach, which works locally, for the ability to solve the national level political issues. Uh, sometimes applying tactically sound procedures will get you to the conditions for a political victory, but sometimes they won't. And sometimes it takes a really long time. So one of the most interesting cases here is Colombia, where the Colombian government um, basically applies many of the principles that we talk about in the book uh, from uh, 2005 onwards and effectively drive the FARC insurgency out into the countryside um, so that it's not affecting most of the country's citizens most of the time. And then the conflict basically is frozen for more than for almost a decade before the peace process starts up. And that peace process is enabled, we argue, because on the FARC side, they had realized that there wasn't going to be a military victory. The government had figured out how to effectively keep them out of any particular piece of territory that it wanted to keep them out of. And on the government side, the average citizen... For them, like the FARC was no longer the threat that it was in 2002 when they were shooting mortars into the Capitol. And so the average citizen was going to countenance a bargain with the FARC, which they never would have agreed to a decade earlier. And so that change on the FARC side and that change on the side of the government supporters, the, the average Colombian citizen, those two things got you to the point where you could get the peace deal, which is still holding together. And... That's a process, that's just like a very long-term process. So strategically, you didn't win that conflict just by doing the tactical things right. You won that conflict by doing the tactical things right and then sitting on it long enough that the politics on both sides changed and you could get a national level deal. So that's one of many ways that you can aggregate up from these local victories to a national solution. But I think one of the systematic Mistakes that we have made in our public policy discourse over the last decade is to mistake the ability to win those tactical victories at the local level using uh, sound approaches to fighting asymmetric conflicts for the ability to resolve the underlying political disputes in the countries that we're trying to help. And those are complementary but different things. Winning the asymmetric conflict can help you resolve the political issues, but it doesn't necessarily do so. And, you know, the experience in, in Iraq, I think, is just a searing example of that.
0: Jake, we've taken up a lot of your time. Before we can let you go, uh, can you tell us about what you're working on now?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, Beth, there are two things I'm working on which are uh, related to the book, which I'm quite excited about. So one is um, working with, uh, with Ellie and Joe and some other colleagues. We're trying to understand uh, how do you effectively work with local allies given that they might not want the same things uh, that you do. So for example, um, in uh, in Pakistan, the US is working with the Pakistani government to contain terrorists who might want to operate out of the federally administered tribal areas, but the Pakistani government has some groups that are operating in that areas that are valued proxies for foreign policy purposes. And so they're not willing to do all the things the United States might want them to do. Stephen uh, Tankle at American University has a wonderful new book on this called uh, With Us and Against Us. But the basic uh, challenge of working with those proxies in different places who we want to help us manage security threats, uh, that's something I'm working on now. And uh, Ellie has a book coming out on this um, uh, next fall. The other big thing I'm working on is with uh, Josh Blumenstock at University of California, Berkeley. We're trying to figure out how, uh, basically, cell phone uh, traffic, how the the metadata from cell phones might be used to help understand and measure uh, how people are doing economically, uh, socially, and um, uh, in terms of uh, in terms of bad events in different places around the world, where the government's ability to measure what's going on is very hard. And so, if you think about trying to plan sound economic policy and trying to figure out how do you help poor people in places that are underserved by their governments. The traditional way we measure these things with surveys is just super expensive and not something that most governments which need help can afford. And so we're trying to figure out, can we use a combination of people's cell phone records and surveys to get really precise measurement of economic activity without so much expense? Because if we can, that might enable better development practice in a lot of places. So those are are the two big projects at the moment.
0: Those sound really interesting. Um, So thank you for being on the show today.
1: Thanks, Beth. I really appreciate it and the chance to talk about the book.
0: Small Wars, Big Data by Ellie Berman, Joseph Feltler, and Jacob Shapiro is available now from Princeton University Press. You can follow the New Books Network on Twitter at New Books Network and the New Books Network National Security Channel at New Books